0: Well, this afternoon, we're going to be, going to be continuing uh, with what we started last week, uh, talking about God as He reveals Himself as Trinity. Um, before we begin, let's go ahead and hear from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 again, uh, just as we hear the foundational element as well as Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And continues to say, and these words that I command you today shall be on your hearts. And then from Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said, Go, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, blessed be your most glorious and holy name. Blessed be, the, blessed be your name for your wonder and your, beaut, your beauty, your might. Blessed be your name for you have revealed yourself to us and father we ask that as we read these words you would guide us we ask oh father that you would help us to grasp have a greater grasp of who you are as revealed to us in your scripture we ask that you would make much of your, much of yourself and that today the glory of the consubstantial trinity the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God eternal, one God, one will, one God, one eternity, one one divinity might be glorified. We pray these things, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we did a rather um, fast walk, I should say, um, covering a lot of ground and a lot of material in a short period of time now, an hour and two minutes uh, may not seem like a short period of time. But when we're talking about the doctrine of God, uh, we are dealing with, with that is actually a short period um, of time, especially when we think about the Trinity. Remember, when we think about God, we are not thinking about something that is a matter of <clears throat> something that is a small matter Or a trivial matter. The things that we are talking about. Last week and this week. Are matters of absolute and eternal importance. As we said the most important thought we will ever think. Is what we think when we think about God. Because it will determine every other dimension of our existence. When we're talking about these issues related to the Trinity. We are not talking about or debating. How many angels can dance on a pinhead. Those are matters for scholars and academics. That's a a, a trope that's given to talk about how some seminary discussions are. But rather, these are things of absolute importance. The doctrine of God. If we get the doctrine of God wrong, we get everything else wrong. Some might say, there's so many things out going on in the world that would seem to be more important than this. The reason the world is the way it is is because the world in the garden rejected God for who He is. and We do not receive Him as He is. It is not something of marginal importance, nor was we talking about something that is merely an academic discussion. The doctrine of God is the doctrine main thing. These are, this is not a matter of something that is a uh, is a secondary or tertiary matter. The Trinity is a matter of primary and fundamental and foundational importance. And we get it wrong to our peril. We get it insufficient to our peril. And that is why we're talking about these things. Last time, we, we laid out the big three based on a couple of those, um, anchor, those anchor passages along with some others. But first of all, there is one God and this one God is one. He is simple. He's not made up of parts. He's not a little bit of holiness and a little bit of righteousness and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And you have God. He does not have holiness. He is holiness. He does not have love. He is love. He is all that He is all the time. After all, does He not save Himself? I am that I am. Secondly, God exists as three persons. As we saw in Matthew 28, 18-20, through 20, the Father, the Son, and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, the word person is oftentimes difficult to understand, and there's a word in your handout, and they're called uh, subsistence, I believe, is the word we used. And that has to do with manner of existence. That God exists, and he exists as three simultaneous and eternal manners of existence. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And seeing as God is one, that he's not divided, and plus different ways that Jesus is talked about and different ways the Holy Spirit is talked about, each person is fully God and, is of, and, and the Trinity is of one will, one eternity, one substance, not three wills, three eternities, or three substances. We have one God who eternally exists in three manners of existence, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we get that wrong to our peril. Remember the isms we talked about. There's tritheism. Three, tritheism asserts that there's not one God, but three gods. That, my dear friends, is rank heresy and puts us outside of Christianity. That's just another form of polytheism. Or Unitarianism. That there's one God who created everything, but does not exist as Trinity. Rather, Jesus is just a human being whose teachings are to be admired, but not divine. He may or may not be the Savior of mankind, but he is in no way, shape, or form equal to God. It was very common in the the colonial America in the 18th century among Congregationalists. There's a couple of historical examples you can see in your handout. John Adams and James Madison were both Unitarians. Unitarian Universalists and United Churches of Christ today... Are tend to be well. The United Churches of Christ tend to be Unitarian. There's also Arianism, named after the fourth-century heretic Arius, that the Son is similar to the Father but not of the same substance. So he's different, a different person, a different being. In fact, that he argued that Jesus, that the Son was created, that there was a when when he was not. Jehovah's Witnesses today are an example of Arianism. From, from the, the Arian controversy, we got what is known as the Nicene Creed. We have confessed that several times in our services, in which that, as well as another, another, uh, other heresies, were dealt with in the language of the Nicene Creed. To believe that is to play to believe Arianism is to place us outside of Christianity. There's subordinationism, that the relationship of the son of the father is not merely one in which the father begets the son, but one of being of a difference or of a different nature or substance that while they're divine, they have a lesser existence. The spirit and the son have a lesser existence. This, too, is rank heresy. We also mentioned eternal functional subordination. This is a rather new development. The ones who hold to this do affirm the big three. But it redefines the relations within the Godhead as those from eternal relations of origin. That is, the father begets the, begets the son and the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. To eternal relations of authority and submission. That the relationship of the father to the son is one of being a submitter and the relationship of the spirit to the father and the son is one of submitting to the father and the son. It's a form of social. We're going to talk about what social Trinitarianism is a little bit, but it ultimately undermines the unity of the Godhead by lending itself to three wills. And if left unchecked could very well lead to to try theism. Not now, not tomorrow, But just like a ship going on a long journey, if it goes one degree off course, is it going to to land anywhere near its destination? No. It is not rank heresy because they affirm the big three, but if left unchecked, may lead to the isms. There's also adoptionism, that the son was not always the son. The man Jesus Christ was adopted as the son at his baptism that's when the divine nature came upon the Christ. Uh, there was one we mentioned last week who believed a form of it. That while the, that while the word or the, divine, the second person of the Trinity is indeed fully God. The, person, the, the son was not the son until the baptism. He didn't get called son until baptism. Uh, that te- uh, there was a prominent teacher who held to that. Who has since turned from that. Then there's modalism. That there's one God who exists as one person and he has different modes in which he reveals himself. Sometimes he's the father, sometimes he's the son, sometimes he's the Holy Spirit. Oneness Pentecostalism are the biggest adherents of that today. Now, not all Pentecostals, most don't, but there's the United Pentecostal Church and apostolic churches are those who would hold to this oneness doctrine. And again, please don't hear me saying all Pentecostals believe that. They don't. The Assemblies of God are very strong Trinitarians because of their fight in the 1920s over that. This, too, is rank heresy. So today, what we're going to be talking about, we've established the, the big three, and now we're talking about something that has to do with the relationship between the big three That is actually not a it's this is not something that comes to us as a logical conclusion, but this is something that actually comes to us from the scriptures. The scriptures speak of the relationship between the three. And as we mentioned, and unfortunately, there was in the there was unfortunately in the past a, a move in order to. Uh, in the last 150 years or so. To redefine those. To take basically two, uh, 1900 years of church history. And church teaching that Protestants firmly held to. Including Roman and Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. And then to say we don't think this is good anymore. But this is something that comes from the scriptures. Remember one God who exists is three persons. Three persons are from Matthew twenty eight eighteen through 20. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three terms communicate to us what we call mutual relations. That is, the Father to the Son, the Father and the Son, the, the, the Father to the Son. Uh, the Father is to the Son, Father, and the Son is to the Father, Son. The Holy Spirit is to the Father and the Son, Spirit. Or another word to say aspirated. We'll talk about what that means. But we see different ways that these terms are used in the Scripture. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, we see that the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. At Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, he is the Father's beloved Son. The Holy Spirit is also called the Spirit of God in Matthew 3, 16. In Matthew 10, 20, he's called the spirit of the father and the spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9, and as well as the spirit of his son in Galatians 4, 6. All of these communicate relations. That is, the father has a unique relationship to the son and the father to the son. The father and the son, seeing the Holy Spirit, is called both the spirit of the father and the spirit of Christ. Have a unique relation to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has a unique relationship to the Father and the Son. These are called. uh, And Scott Swain says. Personal properties. The question though is. What are these mutual relations and or personal properties? We'll talk about the importance of what we're about to talk about. After we talk about it. Because we want to get to the Bible first. We mentioned last week. Psalm chapter 2 verse 7, in which we have the psalmist um, making an observation. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, a psalm of David, we see that there is uh, the psalmist is making a statement about something God says with regards to one he calls son. Now in the immediate context. It says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In the immediate context, it would seem that this is applying primarily to David, uh, that he is the, uh, that this is the son. However, this is uh, under, this needs to be understood properly in light of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, which we actually went through uh, over a year ago, um, in which it says this. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. This is speaking about the son who is the final revelation of God. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings forth forth, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels wins and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your command companions and you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundations of the earth. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, like a mantle. You will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? So who is this, the, the author of Hebrews telling us that Psalm chapter 2 verse 7 is speaking of? He is speaking of this one to whom in, in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 in, in previous times and, and places, God had revealed himself in many ways, but now he's revealed himself to us in his son. That son is Jesus Christ. And he says in verse five, and this is a part where he's saying that he's greater than angels, though, even for a time in his incarnation, he was lower than angels. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. So he's speaking of the son here and then he goes. And so some might say that, well, this is referring to him when he was brought into humanity and thus he became the son of God then. But he he goes on to say, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. So those first two statements are referring to this, this son before it's hard to say it this way, but it, Because we're dealing with time and we live in time and God's not in time. But before there was time, before there was creation, before the incarnation, the father says this of the son, today I have begotten you. Today I have begotten you. Now, there might be one who would say, well, that would seem to indicate that that means that the Father created him. That there was a when when he was not. However. When is it today for God? Always. It is always today for God. So how long has this son been begotten? As long as, the, as, long as God has been. That means this, that means the son is eternal. That means the son, this is telling us something about the relation of the father to the son. That is the father in the context of the one the one divine being, the one eternity, the one will, the father is to the son, father and the son is to the, to the father, father, because the son, Proceeds, or I should say, is begotten from the Father. That doesn't mean created. It means, we could say, generated from the Father. Consider this. How is it that we know the rays of... How is it that we see the sun? The sun that's up in the sky. Via its rays... What we call its rays, the light that emanates from it. How long has the light emanated from that sun? As long as the sun has been, so has the light emanated from that sun. That light and that sun are of the same essence. It's an imperfect illustration. But all of our illustrations fail us. I mentioned last week, I forgot to give the illustrations last week. But some of them, like we'll use an egg. a god is like an egg, you've got the shell, we've got the yolk, and've when uh, the, and we've got the the white. Unfortunately, that's three parts. so you've got three gods, essentially. Th- uh, the one plus one plus one equals three. Or some might say it's water, it's like water. That water exists as solid and exists as liquid and it exists as gas. and the problem with that. Does a molecule of water exist as all three at the same time? No, that's modalism. Or a pretzel, that's three parts. Or a shamrock, that's tritheism, that's three gods. They all fail us. But the Greek word there that is translated begotten is genao, from which we have the idea basically of generating. That's the idea of generating. What is the most fundamental relationship between a father and a son? Now, some might say, well, the most fundamental relationship is that the father is over his son. He's the boss of his son. That's not the most fundamental relationship between father and son. Is the the son comes from his father. The son comes from his father. But here in the Godhead... As long as the father has been, so has been the son. There is no son without the father, and there is no father without the son. That's how God has has revealed himself. That That the son is of the father. This does not make the son any less God. Because we've seen the Son is revealed to us that He is God, and for Him to be less God would be for God to change. For him to be less God would be for Him for would be for God to no longer be simple. For, for no, God for no longer to be one. We also have another passage, John chapter one, verse eighteen. I must ask any of you any of you please don't give me a show of hands tell me privately if you if you have but have have any of you seen God I'm not, I'm not expecting to see any hands If I see a hand we need to have a talk Well John chapter 1 verse 18 tells us this After speaking, and we mentioned John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made in him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. and We have seen his glory, glories of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See another relation there from the father, full of grace and truth. But verse 18, no one has ever seen God. In fact, I'll um, <clears throat> give you the translation. I'm doing this um, departing from the ESV for this translation and going to the NASB because the NASB takes less interpretive freedom here. Um, It says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him. The word there that is translated is only in the SV. The Greek word is monogenes, and it can mean only or unique, but still has that same root of gen, of generated. So only begotten is another way of saying that. Father to son. He is the only begotten God. The only. And and, uh, there's other texts that read son instead of God. But they both communicate the same idea. Notice he's in the bosom of the father. That is, he has close relationship to the father. He is with the father. We've already seen earlier. He is everything God is. He is God. John chapter 1 verse 1. First John chapter one, verse five eighteen gives us more language here. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born or begotten, the same word, Ganao there, of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know no one who is born of God sin, but he, that's speaking of Jesus, who was begotten of God, keeps him. Who keeps? His people. Jesus. And it says here. Who is begotten of God. That he comes from the father. Also. In, also in, considering that. Who is it that has authority. To command the devil. Do you and I have authority to command the devil. We do not. We do not have authority to command the devil. We. Uh, There's those who say, well, we do, but even they would qualify it saying it's because of Christ. We do not have authority to command the devil. As a matter of fact, even the archangel said to the devil, the Lord rebuke you. So if the son who is begotten of God keeps him. It tells us something about this, this one who is begotten of God. If he can command the devil, he is truly divine he is truly divine so what we see here is the father begets the son what is this begetting or generating as we mentioned earlier it's in the name you've heard that uh, you've heard that in some marketing before it's in the name well it's in the name father and son that's what this begetting is the father is father to the son and the son is son to the father now a good a good number of modern era theologians have defined this in terms of authority or supremacy but it's far more basic than that it is it is the nature is it is it it, it it is the nature of a father to produce children no yes that is the nature of a father is to produce children of course it also involves a woman but it is of the nature of a father to produce children Ephesians 1, 3, verses 14 and 15. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family on earth and on earth derives its name. That is, it's speaking of the Father, it seems the most logical way of looking at this. It's speaking of the Father is the pattern for familial generation. Now, we also have to be careful when we remember this, that it is patterned after the Father and not human fathers, and not after human fathers. And this analogy is not to be taken to refer to the Father creating the Son, because God is fundamentally different from humans. He's in his own category. But it is in the nature of the of Father to generate children. Remember, God is unique in his own category. First Samuel chapter 2, verse 2 tells us that much. I have to be very careful with my Bible here because pages are starting to fall apart and t- turn the pages carefully. First Samuel chapter two, verse two There is none holy like the Lord, there is none beside you, there is no rock like our God. There is none who is like God. Uh, but Scott Swain he says he, he argues, and this is not a quote, this is a summary. This is not one uh this is not one-to-one language. Rather, it's giving us an analogy. He says, we declare different things of God's fatherhood than we declare of creaturely forms of fatherhood, because creaturely forms uh, cause, because creaturely form, soft fatherhood were made to resemble in some distant way. God's unique God's unique and transcend, uh, to, in a distant way, God's unique and transcendent fatherhood. That is, God's transcendent fatherhood is an image or is a pattern for creaturely forms of fatherhood because they were made to resemble, but not in a one-to-one way because there cannot be one-to-one between God and man because God is fundamentally different from mankind. He's in a different category. In a distant and similar way as sons resemble their fathers, the son is the image of the father. Colossians 115. He is the image of the invisible God, but it is not as two different beings, but one of eternally being generated or begotten of the father as to his person. But his essence is not of the father, for he is his essence is that of being God, but he's distinct in person. His essence is communicated by virtue of divinity. His person is that which is generated. So, God is Father as he relates to his only begotten Son, and as related to us in that only begotten Son, when united to the human nature, is our Redeemer. That is, because his only begotten Son, being united to the human nature, became our Redeemer. We too become sons by being regenerated, being made new. <clears throat> we see this displayed in what we call that, that activity of God working that out uh, in history. We call that the economic activity of the Trinity. In Genesis John 1 1 and Genesis 1 through 3, God said, Let there be light. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This was in the, and in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. His acts of creation, his acts of redemption are the Trinity acting in creation. But When he acts in creation, he acts in such a way that we can grasp that which we we can grasp according to our limited understanding. We must be take care in our not to collapse his action history with his person. The word which which created came from the Father. This word which is eternally begotten of the Father, being of the same essence of one will, one being, and one eternity. One reason this language fell out of use among uh, evangelicals in the 20th century was because because of the assault on the divinity of Christ. That is, they saw this language of being begotten as undermining the divinity of Christ. However, the Bible authors did not see that language being a problem. Some theologians either quietly omitted it, like, one, like my hero Warfield, or outright rejected it, like Robert Raymond. The concern is that it communicates. Their concern is that it communicates createdness. But the Nicene, however, the Nicene Creed written to argue against createdness uses the term begotten or generated. The father and the son, each of the same nature as we saw last week, each person being what we might call a matter of exi- a manner of existence, but not a separate existence. In the sense of being a separate being the father is to the his father is to the son father and the son is to the Father, son being begotten of the father. We also mentioned earlier all the different various ways in which we see the Holy Spirit, of which we see the Holy Spirit spoken. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of His Son, the Spirit of the Father. The Holy Spirit was there in the beginning, was present at Jesus' baptism, shared in the purpose of God's glorious, eternal purposes of redemption through the Son, and guided the people of Israel through the wilderness. Isaiah 40, 40, verses 3-14 through Particularly verse three, who has directed the spirit of the Lord, whereas his counselor has informed him with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding. Here see who uh, who has directed the spirit of the Lord. Notice the language that is there. Isaiah 63 Then his people remembered the days of old of Moses. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit in the midst of them? Who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses? Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like the horse in the wilderness? They did not stumble. As cattle which go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Who was leading the people through the wilderness? The spirit of the Lord. Now, it is, it, it, there is admittedly a relative spa, uh, paucity. That is, there's not much of information in the New Testament scriptures on the person of the Holy Spirit. But after all, in the economy of salvation, in John sixteen fourteen, the Spirit has not come to speak of himself, but to glorify the Son. But we can see some of that in John 6, 16, 12 through 15, which he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Does this language sound familiar at all? If we're familiar with the Gospel of John? John chapter 5, 19-24, he says something very similar of his relationship to the Father. He says, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless 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 it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the son so that all will honor the son even as they honor the father. He who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. What does Jesus say about His relation to the father there. All that the father has is his. Everything he sees the father doing, he does. Who can do what the father does if not one who is God? Now, what does he say of the spirit? He will take what is mine and give it to you. So, the father gives to the son according to his being. uh, the, The son is begotten of the father. And does all that the father does. Because he is all that the father. Uh, because he is all that the father is. The son takes that which is. The spirit takes that which is the sons. And gives it to us. And so the spirit gives that which comes from the father and the son. And again. So what the father has the son has. What the father and son have the Holy Spirit has. This is what qualifies the spirit for which He comes. How is he able to speak that which the father and the son have unless he too has it? How is he able to glorify the son unless he has access to all the son's glory? So the distinction is not in what the Holy Spirit's nature is. Or even in what the Holy Spirit has. It is in the way he has it. Again, not as not being of a, because he's of a different essence or nature. Or but but as a manner of the as a manner of existence of the one existence. Scott Swain says the spirit is an acts from the father and the son. What he has he takes from the father and the son. A little deeper thinking the spirit takes that which the father and the son have and speaks them to his people. He breathes them through us. How do the scriptures we have come to us. 2 Timothy 3:16 All scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching, reproof, so forth and so on. And that happened in 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 21 as men were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So by the Holy Spirit the word was breathed. The word which comes from the Father was breathed to us through the Holy Spirit, and who is the Word but the Son? John fourteen verse twenty. Um, continue, um, okay, sorry, I lost I lost place in my notes here. Um, but how did the Scriptures we ha- uh, this also keep in mind? The Spirit heard and breathed the covenant of redemption that is voiced in Psalm chapter two verse eight. And he voiced what was seen in Psalm chapter two, verse seven. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. He heard and breathed that. The spirit heard and breathed the covenant of redemption voiced in Psalm two, verse eight. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. The very ends of the earth is your possession. The spirit says in Hebrews one, two, it says the son who is the final revelation of God. He says in John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the whole, this Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Notice this. In God's acts in history, we see this demonstrated um, as a, in a way we can understand. Now, a big word for that. It's analogically. He gives it to us analogically as an analogy. That means in a way we can understand. <clears throat> The Father sends the Spirit in Jesus' name. Taking what we've seen, the Father is called Father because he is Father to the Son. The Son is called Son because he is Son to the Father. The Holy Spirit is called Spirit because the Spirit is spirated from the Father and the Son or through the Son. It's in the name. It's in the name. The Holy Spirit is the breath of the father and the son, the voice by which the son speaks, that which the father speaks and has, and ha- and has all that the father and son has because he is of the same essence. In, the, in this economy of salvation, God, the father sends. In the incarnation. And the Holy Spirit sends the son in the incarnation and he sends the holy spirit who raises the man jesus christ from the dead the father sends the son who lived and died for us according to his humanity this this man who did the father's will in his humanity and the holy spirit speaks that which the father through the son has accomplished to the elect bringing them life so we don't have three agents all acting independently according to their own agency or their own wills, we have one God existing in three eternal and simultaneous manners of existence, willing salvation for his people. And this doctrine of the Father begetting the Son, and the Father and the Son, and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, we call this the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, and the procession of the Holy Spirit. This is not inconsequential at all. This actually guards and defends the unity of the Godhead. And we leave it out to our peril. We also miss this foundation of all of our relationship with the Trinity. That when, when the Holy Spirit is ministering His, the grace of God to us, he is doing it in union with the Father and the Son that everything that happens to us happens to us because the trinity in unity is acting together as one will. This is not just an academic adate, a debate. So why is it we're talking why is it we are talking about this? Well, we've mentioned that that language is actually missing from our statement on the trinity. The statement itself In and of itself, by itself, there's nothing that I take exception to and that any of us really should take exception to. But but when we leave that language out, we leave a gaping hole. We leave a gaping hole. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Remember, there are not three existences, but three eternal manners or modes of the one existence. There are not three essences, three wills, three centers of consciousness, but one essence, one will, one center of consciousness. By the way, this is in your handout. You can follow along if you want. That the Son is begotten of the Father and that God is one means that the Son is all that the Father is. That the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son and that God is one means that the Holy Spirit is all that is the Father and the Son. These manners or modes of existence are not mere ways of revelation like modalism. That is sometimes father or son or Holy Spirit, but actual and eternal relations of origin within the Trinity. Origin or generation or begotten does not mean created in this context of the Trinity. The simplicity of God, God is one. I am that I am. God does not contain parts, nor does God change. Thus, as long has been the father, so has long, so has been the son. As long has been the son, so has the Father begotten the Son. And I even shudder to say as long, because that's putting time on God. But I have no other way to say it. As long as been the Holy Spirit, so has the Father and the Son spirated, or uh, spirated the Spirit, or the Spirit proceeded from the Father and Son. One of the authors... Of the Constantinoplean Creed, I think I pronounced that right. The Creed of Constantinople, which was the 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 which gives us the final version of the Nicene Creed that we confess today. He says, "We do not divide the nature by the word uh, that is origin." But not uh, by, by the word origin, but only indicate the fact that the son does not exist without generation, nor the father by generation. But we must needs in the first place believe that something exists. What exists? God exists. Okay, and then scrutinize the manner of existence of the object of our belief. Thus, the question of existence is one that God exists, that he exists as father, son and Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the, and that of the manner of existence of another. That is, God exists; He is one, and He has three manners of existence: the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And again, this is not a small matter. This is not the same thing as angels asking about angels dancing not dancing on a pinhead. This is basic Christianity: the Trinity. And here's why. Without these relations of origin, which have their rooting in the scriptures, we are free to speculate on what exactly are the personal properties of the the members of the Trinity. Those personal properties are the relations of origin. They are not those of ultimate versus non-ultimate glory. They are not those of three centers of consciousness which had the inevitable logical conclusion of not merely three manners of existence, but three beings, thus three gods. The 20th century was rife with something called social Trinitarianism, that when we lost the eternal generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit in our confession, what rose in its place was social Trinitarianism. That is interpersonal social relations were viewed as the grid through which to view the Trinity in itself. Now, what is the risk there? We are making God in our image. We're defining God by how we observe interpersonal human relations. We're making God in our image when we do that. And social Trinitarianism um, had different ways in which it would viewed and uh, the different proponents of different versions of social Trinitarianism. Um, uh, conveniently, the relations between the Trinity so happened to match the, perfect, the, the, way, the way they thought the perfect society should look. For some, the Trinity was a, uh, the Trinity was a, uh, turned into a, uh, was uh, three agents all acting in collaboration with one another in an egalitarian utopia. And thus, the human society should be an egalitarian utopia of free of different moral agents, all acting in collaboration with one another. Because God is three moral agents acting in collaboration with each other. Of course, others disagreed and say, no, there's hierarchy in the Trinity. The father is over. The father rules over the son and the father and the son rule over the spirit. And so society should look like this hierarchy. And it so happens that these people had preconceived notions as to what society should look like, and they were reading that back onto the Trinity. That, my brothers and sisters, is something, a word that begins with an I and ends with a re, and has a dullet in the middle. Such desired societal structures, as I mentioned, range from egalitarian utopias to top-down hierarchical orders. That's making God in our image. It's taking who we are as creatures and collapsing that into the Godhead. To be made in the image of God has to do with this. Because it's defined there in Genesis one twenty-eight: is to rule over creation. To be his vice regent. You're created with authority over creation. We were created as his image bearers. <clears throat> Thus have inherent dignity. But the problem with with the social trinitarianism is three humans are not three manners of existence in one eternal being. Three humans are three beings, which means tritheism. Maybe not today, but down the road of left unchecked. Now, we are not immune from such as Bible-believing people who come from an evangelical background. We are not immune from that. In the 21st century has risen another form of social Trinitarianism, but it so happens this social Trinitarianism supports a, something we like, something I believe. But we must not mess with the Godhead to do it. While it affirms the big three, God is one, there are three persons, each person is fully God. It too does away with the eternal relations of origin they argue that while the son is equal in essence to the father the son is lesser in authority than the father the holy spirit is lesser still in authority than the father and the son it's social because it defines the relationship in terms of social interaction here in orders of hierarchy Furthermore, it's social because it's given as the pattern for the relations between the sexes. As the son is equal but lesser in authority than the father, so women are equal but lesser than, lesser in authority than men. It's argued that this is the nature of the father and the nature of the son and the nature of the Holy Spirit, as it is the nature of men and the nature of women. Now, as I said, I believe that... In the household, there is, ma- there is male headship. In the, in, in the life of the church, the eldership is to be occupied by qualified men. But that stands on its own two feet because God's word says that much. Do we need to meddle with the Trinity to strengthen that? Some will even go as far as to say that the Father has ultimate glory. And when we do that now, we're dabbling into multiple wills. And multiple centers of consciousness. Hear what one proponent. Of this teaching called eternal functional subordination of the son. Or eternal subordination of the son. Or as one writer. um, Calls it eternal relations of authority and submission. He says the father is supreme over all creation in particular. He is supreme within the Godhead is the highest in authority. And the one deserving of ultimate praise and ultimate glory and honor. Does that sound anything like the Gospel of John, where the Son says, when I am am glorified, my Father is glorified, when my Father is glorified, I am glorified. No. So the Son, though fully God, and though all that the Father is, gets something other than ultimate glory. This is a functional, even if not confessional, it is a functional denial of the unity of the Godhead. while we affirm the headship of the household and the exclusivity of the office of elder to qualified men that stands on its own without needing to meddle with the most important element of our theology, who God is. Restoring the eternal relations of origin to our articles of faith is to put that which scripture itself talks about into our articles of faith. To restore it is to protect us in the future from deviations that take us dangerously close To what is unacceptable. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But again. Think of course. Long term course. See the chart. uh, You can see that chart below. From Matthew Barrett's book. Simply Trinity. In which we see. uh, The Nicene Orthodoxy. Which is what we're contending for. And social Trinitarianism. And how it undermines. The unity of the Godhead. Now I couldn't fit a certain another thing down there below on the right side in which it said the charge is tritheism. That is where it will lead is tritheism. So brothers and sisters, when we think about these things, and although praise be to God, one of the authors who has prominently written about this, uh, Wayne Grudem, has recently come to accept the language of the uh generation of the begottenness of the son and the procession of the holy spirit though he still holds to that subordination view i pray that he continues i I consider him a brother by the way i consider him a brother i don't want to i don't want to throw wayne grudem and bruce ware and and owen strahan out as as brothers in christ but where they are where those things go will can very well lead to very dangerous places it's why we plug holes. There's places where it's okay to have holes. To have a little wiggle room. There is no place for wiggle room in the doctrine of God. We must have this. Uh, we must ensure that we get these things right. So brothers and sisters. Um, in your. Um, bulletins is a. A. Um, is in is a handout and i'd like for us to join together in confessing what we believe about the trinity based on the nicene creed which is just simply language from the nicene creed which we've confessed many times um please join with me i'm going to ask the question we'll we'll answer Um, church which simply means assembly by the way church what do we believe about the trinity This one divine and infinite being consists of three real persons or subsistences, the Father, the Word or Son, and the Holy Spirit of one substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence, yet the essence undivided. The Father is neither begotten or proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God, who is not to be divided in nature and being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all of our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you, O Son, for who you are. We praise you, O Holy Spirit, for who you are, one God, eternal, undivided, who's always working in us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.